0: Welcome, welcome. I'm Leah. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor here at Haven Berkeley. Glad you're here with us today. So, I want to start with a question How do you decide what information is for you and what is for other people to know? Like, what information is private, simply for you, maybe someone you share intimacy with? What information is available for others to know, to talk about, etc.? I think this question's taken on a particular amount of resonance in our social media era, right? Because there's, like, a wider platform for knowing people and being known than we had even, like, when I was growing up, right? You could say that there's, like, concentric circles of intimacy. There's yourself. That's the first—that's, like, the inner core, right? Right? And maybe next tier out is potentially if you have a significant other, a partner, a lover, broader family might be the next tier out, even like extended family goes out from there, maybe your immediate community, your folks from church, or from the people you work with, or, you know, students in school with you, etc. But it just keeps going out, right? And thanks to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, there are like kinds, there are kinds of people at all levels of intimacy, that we end up being connected with, right? People we've just met, and we're kind of getting to know them on Facebook, right? People you haven't seen in 20 years, but they friended you. Cousin who drives you crazy in person, but she shares cute photos of her kids. They're all there, somehow connected. And you have to make that kind of call, right? Whenever you post something, whenever you share something in person, what is for what level? What's appropriate? When do you make something, you know, quote, unquote, Facebook official, whether it's a pregnancy, a new job, a loss in your life, a new relationship, right? Often by the time I think people have updated their relationship status, this is like not a brand new thing, right? They've kind of already negotiated that amongst themselves. Something has already happened, and then they decide, okay, this is the moment we're going to make it Facebook official, right? Right? This is when we can go from our more intimate circles to something bigger. But what do you think precipitates the moment of unveiling to someone something true of yourself at any of those concentric circles? Which ones do you find harder or easier to reveal things to? I start with this kind of pondering about revealing information because I think it's actually connected to what we're considering from a faith perspective these first couple weeks of January. Today is the second Sunday um, that we're starting off the new year focusing on stories of what's called epiphany, which means manifestation or appearance. I think we have a slide. It comes from the the Greek term Epiphaneia, And uh, this... Last week, we considered uh, the story that Christians in the West often consider the arrival of the Magi. This week, we're considering something that comes from the Eastern tradition. They also call this day Theophany, okay? which means t- uh, it's also a little more specific. Rather than just the appearance or manifestation, it means the appearance or manifestation of God, of the divine. okay? So a little background in case you don't know what I'm talking about when I say West versus East— and I'm talking about church. Um, so this has its origins um, back in Christian history, okay? Um, and this comes about a 1,000 years ago. There was one ultimate church, Catholic church, and, and then there was a split, okay? And it resulted in the Roman Catholic Church. It's called the Great Schism. Um, and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and those kind of became, that was the first big split. Eventually, things would splinter, 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 a lot. Um, but, but that's kind of the first big one, okay? Um, the many, if, if anyone's been involved in Protestantism, a lot of us, I think, have a background in that. That comes from some of the splitting that came off of the Roman Catholic wing. Okay, but that's still, but I think a lot of folks who have a Protestant or Catholic background kind of sometimes forget that there was this whole other wing of the church. And there are still plenty of Christians who practice Ether and Orthodox faith, even in the United States. And so the Eastern Church, the epiphany story that's focused on is different than the story of the Magi. Okay, some call it the theophany. Like I said, it's the story we're going to look at today. It's the story of Jesus's baptism. So first a bit about this whole idea of what baptism is and the context for that, okay? So the setup is this guy, John the Baptizer, right? He's this ascetic. He has this, like, interesting clothing and diet. He's preaching in this desert, and people are drawn to him. Matthew says it like this, uh, starting at verse 4. Now, John wore clothing made from camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey interesting. Then people from Jerusalem, as well as all Judea and all the region around the Jordan, were going out to him, and he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So why are all these folks coming out to take a dip in the Jordan? What was that about? Many Christians, I think, don't realize that what John was doing wasn't actually like a new novel thing. It was actually deeply rooted in ancient Jewish practice. Since the time of Moses, observant Jews—which all the people we're talking about, including Jesus—were um, they were encouraged at certain times to immerse themselves in either a natural pool of water, like a stream or a river, or a pool of ritual purification that had been like created for that, um, called a mikvah. Okay. So many Jews, particularly Orthodox Jews, still use mikvahs today. They're built into synagogues. It's a regular part of religious life if you, for, for many observant Jews. And if we had an Orthodox Jew here, he or she may tell you there are various times that ritual purification with a mikvah is undertaken. Okay? When converting to Judaism, that's one instance. Somebody wants to become a Jew who is not born a Jew. Part of the conversion process means being cleansed in a mikvah. Often right before marriage, bride and groom would go through a mikvah. Priests, before they'd offer sacrifices. Women, after they have their period. So this is like one of the most often used uh, uses of it. It was a way to submit oneself to God for cleansing, for purification. It was understood to be kind of a rebirth, as one entered the waters similar to the waters of the womb and emerged out fresh. So John when he was, you know, calling people into the Jordan River, was doing something historic. But he clearly also saw it as pointing to something new. And this is what Matthew tells us he was saying about it in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, He seems to be calling people back, right, to this ancient form of purification, of making oneself ready for God by immersing yourself in water, but he's also recognizing that something more profound is coming, something that's much more powerful, and that's the immediate setup for the epiphany story. So the story starts like this, verse 13, this is the main heart of the story. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. So Jesus replied to him, let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John yielded to him. After Jesus was baptized, just as he was coming up out of the water, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my one dear Son. In him I take great delight. Okay, so we have this famous story. It's a story that's told in some fashion in three of the four Gospels, always in a way of kind of launching part of, launching it's like the launching point for the bigger story that Luke or Matthew or Mark is trying to tell okay and the context of this story is that it's like kind of the official entry point into the most significant point that Christians think Jesus followers believe was Jesus's life his active ministry this is like the kickoff okay he goes he's baptized and he's going to head into the wilderness and be tempted for 40 days. Then he emerges and begins actively ministering, performing miracles, preaching, all of that, okay? So this story is the moment that, like, kicks it all off. The epiphany, the place of manifestation from which everything else emerges. But who was this epiphany for? And what did it mean? And how might reflecting on it anew influence our own understanding of this event, as well as our own perception of where God might be appearing in our world today. Well, one thing Christians have often pointed out about this story is that it's one that illustrates this idea of a trinity, this three persons of God, somehow cohesive, working together, right? You have this, the picture of these three in harmony more clearly here than probably anywhere else we see in like the arc of the Bible, right? We have the picture of the son being blessed by the father, this like grand God parent, and then the spirit coming and alighting on the sun like a dove, right? It's a cool moment. It helps illustrate the community within God that God is not a person. God is a relationship of persons, right? That's what it's demonstrating. It's like God is putting God's relationship status on display. Here's the tie-in, okay? God is making it Facebook official. We are a thing, all right? Jesus is part of this thing. God's decided in some way to announce something about God's self. God's known it for a long time, like you could say eternity, Right? But now, this is the moment. It's being made public in a way that's never been quite so clear. Right? So why that moment? Why the theophany then? So there's an interesting little point we might miss that comes right at the beginning. This tiny little detail that Matthew throws in there. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. Now, if you don't know anything about the geography and the social dynamics of Israel at the time, that sounds fairly meaningless. But for Matthew's readers and the audience at the event, this is an important detail. So I have a map for you. The Jordan stretched all the way. If you see down below, it says Judea, then Samaria is in the middle, and up there is Galilee, the province of Galilee, okay? Okay. And the Jordan stretches, I don't know if you can tell, but there's two seas there, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, these two lakes, and the Jordan stretches between them. All right? Now, at this point, we, it seems that, that the part of the Jordan we're talking about is much closer to the Dead Sea, in the area of Judea, outside of Jerusalem. Okay, you can see one of those dots you might see is Jerusalem. That's the big city. That's the capital. Okay, if you've ever heard that Jesus is from Nazareth, he's way up in that Galilee place. There's a little dot there as well called Nazareth. But right where uh, John seems to be drawing, Matthew tells us the detail. People are coming from Jerusalem, the area around Jerusalem, and all of Judea, he says. So they're coming from the southern province. And probably what what that's supposed to mean is that Jesus is really like right north of, or John's north of the Dead Sea, drawing people from the immediate region, right? And that includes a whole bunch of uh, the religious people of power. John's actually been pretty harsh with them right before Jesus arrives. Um, That's kind of the setup. He's kind of speaking to folks who hold a lot of cultural power. He's speaking to the religious leaders from Jerusalem. He's speaking to the urban elites. He's pointing them to someone who's coming with even more power than him. And then in walks Jesus from Galilee. And Galilee, for somebody who lives in Judea, is not a very cool place. It is the socially inferior place. Galilee is rural. Judea is urban. Galilee's under a different governor. That's what these colors are actually denoting, is the governorships of, uh, of the area at the time. So they're not all just like one nation state all led by the same people. They're actually, it's like a different state with a different governor. So that was kind of like a... different Galileans talk funny okay Judeans thought they had an accent where they dropped some of their uh, their consonants in a weird way so they they, there was like a bias against them for that Um, religious folks thought that Galileans were too lax in their religious practices and there was racial tension between Jews in Judea and Jews in Galilee because as you can see Galilee is like more on the border of some other nation so it's more mixed racially okay It's not quite as purely Jewish. And so, after John's been preaching to these Judean folks about they need to repent, and P.S., someone's coming that puts him to shame, Jesus walks in. And he's not one of their own. He's from Galilee. So the story goes on. Matthew's the one gospel writer to tell us not just of the event, but of this exchange that takes place between John and Jesus, okay? Nobody else tells us this little detail, so we're going to look at it. First, we get John's reaction to Jesus. John, like, tries to stop him from coming in the water. He's saying, like, I need to be baptized by you. What is that about? Now, I think John and Jesus don't really seem to know each other well before this event. I mean, technically, they're like second cousins or something, but they've been living in the opposite parts of the country, right? Right? Uh, John's been preaching in the Judean wilderness. Jesus has been quietly living as a carpenter in Galilee. But John does recognize him when he arrives as the one that he is supposed to be like preparing the way for. So what do you think he actually believed about who that person was? Like, Do you think he thought that... Did he know about the relationship status right? that Jesus has with the divine? That Jesus is like actually the son of God. I don't think he knew that. He probably felt like he was there to prepare for what prophets had called the Messiah, which means in Hebrew, the anointed one, which is referring to the fact that kings were always anointed with oil as a sense of them being set aside for their role. But the implication is it's a fairly political earthly leader we're talking about. There was never an explicit teaching that this person would actually be God in the flesh. That's a new innovation. Okay? He may have expected that they w- the person would be kind of prophetic, as he is, a spiritual leader, as well as political. But that's still different than, this is the son of God. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So pro- John probably didn't quite get what Jesus' connection to God actually was when he saw him. But he does seem to sense that Jesus isn't actually in need of what he has to offer, right? John's like, I'm offering this baptism of repentance. And as far as I can tell, Jesus doesn't need it. So what do I mean by that? Baptism of repentance. At Haven, we like to talk about pursuing faith, and you can put the next slide up, as as a journey as a community of gathering of folks who are trying to center our lives around God. So here you have two groups, right? Bounded set is you're just uh, grouped together by shared characteristics, and if you all believe the same thing, you could be in, and if you don't, you're out, or if you all, you know, sing the same way, or whatever it is, Share, you're, you're, all women are together, all men, whatever. That's in and out. That's bounded set. But we're not trying to be that. We're saying, we think actually faith is more of just a trajectory point. It's a journey. We're all trying to move towards God, towards the divine, towards Jesus. However, we think it's helpful to name that. And our job here as a community is to just help people redirect their arrow a little bit every day. That's what all of us are trying to do, is redirect our own arrows, recognizing it doesn't matter. I'm the pastor. I could be my arrow today. I've been like, you know, just mad at my kids and letting it show, and I didn't sleep enough last night, and I am right now way pointed away from God. And somebody who's never been to church in years uh, actually is like way more their trajectory is right in line, okay? That's what we're talking about. How do we help make a space where we can all kind of reorient? And I think this model actually fits super well with this language of repentance and sin. Okay, that feels to us a lot of times really heavy. The sin stuff is like, oh, this means you're a bad person, and repentance means you should feel bad about it, right? Um, But actually, the language we have from the Greek, repentance just means turn. It just means change your arrow direction, okay? You're headed off in an unhelpful way, turn, because you have quote-unquote hamartia, which we call sin, it means you're missing the mark. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. You did bad things. It means you're not on line. You want to be going that way, but you're actually headed this way, so you need to move and turn that way, right? So that is what John's trying to do. He's trying to call people back to be pointing the right direction, right? They're saying, you got off course. We need to recalibrate. But he meets Jesus, And it's like, oh my gosh, I've never seen anyone so on course. I can tell. I need him to help me recalibrate. I need him to be my North Star, right? He can feel that. And so there's this sense of like, you don't need to do this. This is a step in the recalibration. You're already right on target. Why would I baptize you, right? And yet Jesus has a response. And his response is, let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, these are the first words that Matthew gives us in his whole account of the life of Jesus. So you got to think they probably matter, right? This is the first quote we get from Jesus, according to Matthew. But I got to admit, I think the words are a little cryptic. What are they supposed to mean? Let it happen now for it's right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, I think the first thing it means is that we get this sense that Jesus is framing this little encounter in the context of a much bigger story. For him, it's not about, do you, John, offer something that I need right in this moment? Do I need to have my arrow repointed? Can you do that for me? That's not why he's come. He's come to do something that has bigger implications something to quote fulfill all righteousness. What does that phrase mean? It sounds like just kind of mumbo jumbo religious language. And the term righteousness is it's a complicated term, but it basically means like having your your life, your inner and outer actions match with that which is kind of eternally true and good. Does that make sense? This sense of what you might call the will of the divine how God, like God's eternal purposes, okay? So righteousness is a kind of faithfulness to the desires of the divine. And Jesus senses that in this moment, it's important for him to be baptized by John to fulfill that, okay? And it's not something that Jesus can do alone. That's what the, the next piece we get. Jesus is showing us here that the work he's supposed to be about is collaborative, He says it's right for us to do this thing, right? We need each other somehow to work together. I mean, it's interesting because if it's just about Jesus being empowered for ministry, like, again, we get this, he's God. It can happen without him needing to do this, right? So it must be about demonstrating something important that that requires a, a cooperation, a mutual submission, John is asked to submit to something he doesn't fully understand, that God's given him a role to play, even if he can't understand why or what it means. And for Jesus, this is part of his full identification with humanity. His full identification. He's showing us how fully human he is. He is to work with humans He's to live fully as a human, he's to embody all that it means to be human. So yes, we may get the sense of, oh my gosh, and P.S., he's God somehow, but he is also saying for him to redeem humanity, he is claiming it fully for himself, and that means fully entering in and submitting to John through this act of baptism. And what I think we can miss here is that Jesus' work in doing that is affirming the sacredness of humanity, and indeed, all of creation. In baptism, he takes on this act, which itself is rooted in human experience, to immerse oneself in water, which is like one of the most elemental parts of the created world, so that you could connect with and submit to your creator. That is the ultimate image of baptism, right? It's a very human kind of experience that creation brings forth creation's flawed nature and says, I'm I'm a little dirty. I need to be cleaned. Creation comes to the creator designed to be purified and connected to its creator through this element of creation. And here Jesus is saying, I am walking with all humans who long to reconnect with their creator. I am there with you. I'm stepping into the waters of longing for renewal with you. I'm seeking communion with the creator in creation, just as my brothers and sisters that I will give myself for are doing. That is what Jesus is doing to fulfill all righteousness. He believes that his public identification with humanity and his submission in this moment to the work of John is being faithful to God's purposes. And God apparently agrees. And the relationship status is made public. Epiphany happens. It's the big ah moment, right? Like sometimes, I think often most of the time in my life, the work of God is pretty subtle. This is not a subtle moment. This is like the clouds part. Oh, like the voice comes. Like there's the dove. Like it, it doesn't get more like blatantly something supernatural than that. It seems to be the ultimate stamp of approval on what's happening at this collaborative baptism, right? If this experience was just about Jesus getting what he needs in terms of the Holy Spirit to do ministry with, it could have happened anywhere. But God seems to be doing it here, I think, because A, it gives affirmation and authority to the work John's been doing. That must have been super helpful. He's working all away, and all of a sudden, here's this big moment, right, that kind of affirms everything he's been about. It reveals Jesus' true identity as the anointed one to people like John and others gathered there. And this, it's like this is the moment of anointing. But it's not anointing of oil for a king, it's anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's the dove coming. That's the anointing moment that's going to empower Jesus to do things that no ordinary king has done. And it speaks affirmation and approval to both of them. They get to taste the fruit of their collaborative work together and fully receive it. But the moment's not just for the two of them, right? It's a public place. There were other people gathered there. We're told that there are all these people that have come out to to see what John's doing. And it's recounted for people like us. It's the revealing of Jesus's character to the world and the setup for all that's to come. So poet and woman of wisdom Maya Angelou, is credited with a quote that's been getting a fair amount of play in the media this week, and rightly so. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. When someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. This, of course, is resonant in the wake of abhorrent comments made this week. I'm sure you've all heard them by now by our president. Comments so vile that media outlets have had to struggle whether to report or or censor the words of the president of the United States. Yet as many of us have heard that that the president referred to nations on the African continent as well as Haiti as shithole nations, we heard it, I said it, uh, we weren't surprised, right? This wasn't actually a new revelation. The president of the United States has been showing us who he is for a long time. He's been showing us since he questioned the legitimacy of his predecessor demanding to see his birth certificate implying that because his skin was black he's not really qualified to be the president. He's shown us since he declared his candidacy and in the same speech called Mexican immigrants rapists and murderers. Since he claimed in the wake of white supremacists wreaking terror and death through Charlottesville that there was blame to be had on both sides of the event since he called NFL protesters sons of bitches. This isn't new. If anyone's shocked by what was reported this week, it's only because they haven't been paying attention. The manifestation of the heart of the current leader of the country happened long ago. That epiphany happened, I would say, a while ago. For as Jesus himself said in Luke 6, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. But the epiphany of Jesus paints a very different picture than the epiphany of Donald Trump. Jesus comes to the river having been born and raised in a place that was the shithole of Israel. When his ministry begins, People look askance at him. Jesus is from Nazareth, from Galilee. Can anything good come from that, they say. But from Jesus, there are no places that are just shitholes. That's not a thing. There are no places too disgusting to inhabit. He has left the perfect dimension of heaven to inhabit creation. And he chose to inhabit a place he knew was despised by many of his day. To demonstrate the flaw of human bias. Jesus identifies with humanity to remind us that humanity is sacred. That all of us have been created in the image of God. That all of creation is sacred and beautiful. The creation is pained, yes. In need of healing, yes. But it is being renewed and redeemed by its creator. And when Jesus walks into the river, he's not disgusted by the dirt. He's not too cold by the water. He's not uncomfortable getting wet or embarrassed to submit to somebody less pure than him. He comes fully embracing his creation, fully participating, cooperating with humans, fully embodying what it means to be human and lifting it up and saying it is very, very, very good. For Eastern Christians who observe this story every year as the moment of epiphany, this experience of Jesus entering the water sanctifies the very water of the Jordan itself. And for them that connects with all water that is core to life on earth. When we are birthed, we come from water. Our life is sustained by water. We forget we can just turn on the tap. It is not that way for much of the world throughout history. If you are far from water, you do not live. Without it, we perish. And as some Christians see it, this water that gives and sustains life becomes blessed by God, affirmed, made holy as this theophany takes place. The creator stands with the created in creation and blesses it. So Christians, like Jesus, many of them choose to be baptized. In the early church, the baptismal pools were actually shaped like crosses. Because the early Christians understood their baptism to be this like surrender of life and a resurrection to new life, similar to how they understood what Jesus came to do, to be died and reborn. I go under the water and die. I surrender to Jesus. I rise, reborn, a new creation, cleansed by holy water, anointed by the same Spirit that anointed him, called into the world, to affirm humanity in the same way he was and participate in the redeeming of all creation. The sacredness of the water and what it affirms of all creation is so important to Eastern Christians that at their epiphany service, they include rituals. The blessing of the waters, it's called. The priest prays over a body of water, blesses it with God's presence and spirit, just as they see Jesus blessing the water of the Jordan. And people will take a vial home, to use to anoint their home, to anoint their friends, to anoint the sick, any places where they're seeking God's blessing, God present to them in this element of creation, the water. In other places, they actually dive into bodies of water that have been blessed. All right, this is a thing. I think this is in Bulgaria. They throw the cross, which is supposed to be like it's the, you know, Jesus going into the water in front of you. And there's, like, a contest. Who can get the cross? And as the water's being blessed, you're supposed to, like, have blessing for the year if you're the person who gets the cross. Other people do, like, a dip. Uh, yeah, so he, he got the cross. He's happy. And then there's one more. There are, uh, like, in a lot of Eastern European countries, uh, on Epiphany, they... they they basically do a kind of a rebaptism in the ice. They carve these ice crosses and they take a dip in the ice water. And it's this sense of kind of living back into that blessed experience of baptism, right? That sense of reconnecting with the baptism, reconnecting with God's blessing through creation. And I think as they do this, they're remembering that Jesus sees that their humanity is sacred. And Jesus values the created world, and Jesus wants to cooperate with the daily work of humans to fulfill the bigger purposes God has for creation. Jesus wants to share with all his connection to the divine and the divine's heart for humanity. They remember that one day on the banks of the Jordan River, Jesus showed them who he was, and they believed it. Amen.